0: com. This is the Brian McClanahan show.. Three, two, one, zero, 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 zero. Welcome back to the Brian Mclanahan show. This is episode 28. I'd like to focus on Abraham Lincoln and the Constitution today. When I wrote My Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America and Four Who Tried to Save Her, one of the chapters focused on Abraham Lincoln, and it was by far the most controversial chapter in the book. Now, the left liked to rip apart my chapter on uh, Franklin Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson or Harry Truman, some of the other very strong executives of the 20th century. And as I talked about in the last podcast, you know, Franklin Roosevelt really is, uh, his administration really is a watershed administration in American history because we're living you know, in the aftermath of that, and we still haven't left a wartime footing, either militarily or economically. But uh, Lincoln's chapter was one that people on the left and the right picked up on and heavily criticized. How can you say Abraham Lincoln screwed up America when he saved the Union? Well, of course, the point of the book is not... The outcome of the policies, or the policies themselves, uh, generally, it's how they upheld their oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So it was a different type of examination of the executive branch. And by the way, when I read reviews of the book, and, and I can tell when people have read it and when they haven't, because uh, if they start talking about, you know, well, how can you say this guy was awful? He did the New Deal, or he did you know X, Y, and Z— uh, because that's not the point of the book. Uh, the point of the book is not to discuss policy; It's to discuss how those particular things that they did, whether it was legislating from the executive branch, or uh, you know, going beyond with executive orders, or um, you know, violating the Constitution through military power. I mean, these are the things I talk about. So um, I can tell when somebody hasn't read it when they go off on that tangent. They just they just don't know. But I want to focus on Lincoln and the Constitution because I think this is the area that uh, anyone who believes in constitutional government should be the most critical of Abraham Lincoln. Again, on the left and the right. Um, Lincoln was not doing anything new in 1861 to 65. I think that's perfectly clear in terms of what had been done before by Andrew Jackson. And even, as I mentioned the book, George Washington— Uh, Washington, in uh, his second term, was listening to Hamilton way too much. And with the Whiskey Rebellion and the Neutrality Proclamation, violated the Constitution. Even though we would like the outcome of the Neutrality Proclamation, it was unconstitutional to do that. And then, of course, Jackson with the, uh, the bank and withdrawing the bank deposits, which was illegal, Uh, And, of course, his reaction to the nullification crisis, quote-unquote crisis, which was illegal. So Jackson and Washington were setting the stage with the Whiskey Rebellion and the response to the nullification crisis, and Lincoln simply capitalized on that. But the real problem with Lincoln is this gray area that he had in in regard to the Constitution in that, uh, this issue of secession. Were the southern states out of the Union or were they not out of the Union? If you're saying they're out of the Union, then the entire war was illegal because he did not have a declaration of war. And even northern newspapers began to pick up on this by about 62 or 63, because Lincoln refused to essentially call it a war. And uh, northern newspapers started saying, well, we're at war with somebody. I mean, so he needed a declaration of war to wage war against the South. So in that particular way, the war would be illegal and a gross violation of the Constitution because neither the, the, Congre- the Congress has to declare war. They didn't. And Lincoln waged this war on his own. So there's one violation of the Constitution. But if you follow the logic that Lincoln used, where he said, well, um, the southern states uh, were not out of the Union. They were in a state of rebellion. Now this presents a much more difficult issue constitutionally. Because if you say they're simply in rebellion and they're in the Union, now you have to follow the Constitution in dealing with these states, particularly in the laws of those states. If you're saying that there's a faction of those states that that is in rebellion and there's a percentage of the state that's not, and we're going to organize a government and they're going to be in session, then what you're doing militarily in those states is 100% illegal. Number one, I point out that Lincoln never had, if you're going to say these states are in rebellion, Lincoln never had a request from either the state legislatures or the governor of these states to send in the, to send in the army. Um, if, you, if you read the Constitution, in order for the U.S. military to be sent into a state to suppress an insurrection, you have to have the permission or a request from the state legislature or the governor, if the legislature is not in session, to do so. That is the only way this can be done constitutionally. And, of course, we know the federal government continually violates that provision of the Constitution all the time. But this is, this is a nice example of how this was happening. And, to my mind, even the, the, the force bill, which would have essentially done this, it was never put into effect never used by Jackson. And so this really is the first point. Uh, well, I mean, I guess you, you, you could use, say the Whiskey Rebellion. Washington did this exact same thing. But in those instances, you, you have the federal government uh, openly violating the Constitution. So uh, I'd like to talk about uh, this particular idea and bring up a few issues here where Lincoln— openly violates the Constitution and by default then violates his oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And I'm going to use as a source, there's a a diary that was published, and the man who wrote it was named Robert Garlic Hill Keene. And he was the head of the Bureau of War for the uh, Confederate government. But uh, when the war was over, he wrote an interesting chapter on nullific- oh, I'm sorry, on, on, uh, on Reconstruction, excuse me. And he started listing in one of these diary entries where he believed Lincoln had violated the Constitution. And a number of these are really good. Uh, some things that, if you wanted to get into a lot of detail about what the Union government was doing at the time, if they say these states are still in the Union, and Keene brings this up, he says, quote, One has taken great pains to look over the historical document known as the Constitution of the United States. Now, note he's calling it a historical document because basically he's saying it's not in effect anymore. To note the plain and palpable violations in letter and spirit which have been made by the government in the United States in the last four years, and noted the following. And he begins a violation of Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, and he quotes it. Representatives and direct taxes shall be appointed, uh, I'm sorry, portioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, etc. And he says, violated by frequent military fines and levies and confiscations, which might have been maintained in some cases by regarding the South as a foreign state. But on the Yankee denial of this were palpable breaches of the Constitution by the collection of the land tax for 1862, 1862 now going on. Now, eventually, this money was returned to the states in 1891. But uh, the Union government were collecting taxes that uh, clearly violated the Constitution, because uh, if you're saying these states are in are in the Union, then you cannot, by the Constitution, require them to pay other fines, which they were paying. Uh, he brings up Article Three, Section Nine, Clause, I'm sorry, Article One, Section Nine, Clause Two. Quote, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless, in cases of, of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. And he says, at this present writing, July eleventh, eighteen sixty-five, the writ remains suspended over the whole U.S. territory, in which there walks not an armed man save in the uniform and under the orders of the United States. The writ was suspended in eighteen sixty-one by Lincoln without authority of Congress and Chief Justice Roger B. Taney's order defiantly set at naught by a lieutenant by the direction of the Secretary of War, the Merriman case. This is the one thing that Taney did that was halfway decent as Supreme Court Chief Justice in the ex parte Merriman decision, where he essentially violated Lincoln's unilateral use or unilateral suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Now, if you don't know what that means, it is one of the few civil liberties that was in the Constitution before the Bill of Rights were added to the document, but this is a very important uh, part of the Constitution because essentially without the writ, with with that being suspended, you can be arrested and held indefinitely. This is where we have the, currently, we have the writ suspended in the United States through the National Defense Authorization Act. The president has signed that into law, but the writ is suspended, and so you can be held indefinitely uh, without being charged with any crime. And this was done in 1861, and it remained suspended throughout the entire United States, uh, and it was used in the North quite frequently. Uh, Another very famous case um, where it was wholesale applied to a city was in Chicago, and uh, Camp Douglas, which was a Union prisoner of war camp in Chicago. Uh, The writ was suspended and civilians were arrested, uh, in one case, you know, they, they arrested a woman, and sh- they threw her in this dungeon in the camp. Uh, people were, were died in prison because of this. Uh, but it was used to round up northern dissenters, and that was the point. And it, it had no effect in the south because the south was operating like the laws of the Union did not apply there. But in the north, it had a chilling effect on dissent. Because anyone could be arrested for any reason, and it's been estimated that over 30,000 people, 30,000 Northerners, were arrested during the war for simple dissent. Now, that number, the United States government would exceed that number during World War I in arresting dissenters. But during the the, uh, Civil War, the war between the states, or the war for Southern independence, whatever you want to call it, um, you had a large number, tens of thousands, in some cases, these people were pretty prominent citizens. One of the examples I give is Thomas Francis Byard of Delaware was arrested uh, and, and held for a time. He later became United States Senator for, from Delaware. He later became uh, Ambassador to Great Britain and Secretary of State. So here's a guy that actually spent time in prison during the war for theoretically you know, opposition to the, to the war, which he did oppose the war. His father, James A. Byard uh, the Younger, uh, was a highly vocal opponent of the Lincoln administration in the Senate. Um, he goes into a number of more a, a number of other issues that are uh, a little bit more intricate in their explanation, but a couple of them. Uh, Article 3, section 2, Clause 3. The trial of all crimes except in cases of impeachment shall be by jury. And such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed, etc. And he says, violated repeatedly, probably in many hundred cases, of civil persons, not spies, tried executed sentence in every kind of corporal punishment and to ruinous fines, etc., by military commissions. The most notable cases are the Landinghams in 1863 and the trial of Payne, Mud, and Surratt, etc., at Washington, later Wirtz. So, um basically the, the martial law that has been established in the South uh, and, uh, and in the North. He brings up the landing him. So martial law ruling where you have civil courts open. And, of course, the, the Union government tried to do this over and over again, even after the war was over. And this was later found uh, unconstitutional in ex parte milligan by the Supreme Court, that you cannot have military courts when civil courts are open. You can't have martial law when civil courts are open. But of course, the Union government was doing it anyways. Uh, And of course, he brings up Payne, uh, Mudd, and Surratt. They, of course, were the uh, conspirators in the Lincoln assassination. So nobody's going to have much sympathy for them. But uh, in this case, he's mentioning, well, there was a military court. These people weren't Uh, Brought before a civilian court and trial by jury. And I think this is an important question to ask. Uh, You know, we we bring this up currently uh, with the war on terror. And uh, should civil courts be used to try terrorists or should we use military courts? I mean, so this is a major question even to this day. Um, He brings up Article 4, Section 3, Clause 1. And that states, new states may be admitted by the Congress into this union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the jurisdiction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned as well as of the Congress. And he says, violated by the erection of a traitorous fragment of Virginia in the northwest corner of the state into the new state, West Virginia, which was, quote, admitted by the U.S. Congress. Now, this is an interesting uh, case because West Virginia was actually in a legal state. It is an a legal state. And this was brought up, there was the very famous Hampton Roads Peace Conference where Lincoln met with uh, three Confederate officials, most notably uh, the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander H. Stevens. And they started discussing, well, what happens if we could have peace? What happens if we could sign a peace treaty uh, and come back in the Union and one of the interesting things, uh, Keene talks about this, and he says Lincoln kept saying, talk history to Seward. He really didn't care about historical precedent or antecedents. All he cared about was getting the South back in the Union in whatever way possible, even with slavery. I mean, this was brought up. Well, what about slavery? And Lincoln said, well, you all can oppose essentially the 13th Amendment. It's up for, for ratification. If you come back in, it won't be ratified. And it was asked of him, what about slaves? What do we do with them if they're freed? And Lincoln said, root, hog, or die. So he's not willing to give any help to former slaves. And this was brought up by the Peace Commission. You're going to have millions of people now who are going to need help. What do you do with them? Well, Lincoln said, root, hog, or die. But it was also brought up about Virginia. And essentially, Lincoln said, well, we'll deal with that in the courts. If Virginia comes back in, we'll deal with that in the courts. But uh, West Virginia was formed without the consent. If you're saying that Virginia is still in the Union, this is the catch. If Virginia is still in the Union and in a state of rebellion, then you have to have the permission of the state of Virginia to allow for the erection of a new government in the western part of the state. And Virginia did not give her permission. Uh, The official government of the state of Virginia did not give her permission to do so. And so erecting West Virginia was actually unconstitutional. So the state of West Virginia was and still is an illegal state. Now, no one's going to challenge that today, but if you want to follow the Constitution as ratified, and that's what I think we need to be doing, that's the original interpretation of the document, then West Virginia is an illegal state and should not be there. That should still be part of the state of Virginia. He also brings up Article 4, Section 4. The U.S. shall guarantee in every state in this union a Republican form of government. And he says, violated in every southern state by the overthrow of their regular, legitimate, and constitutional governments and by the appointment of the President of the United States of government supported by garrisons in every town and county. And Virginia, especially flagrant by the setting up of a pretender in the place of a government which has been in regular uh, succession since 1618. This is the West Virginia, and then, of course, what Lincoln said was the legal government of Virginia, what he calls the Pierpont government. He also brings up, uh, note, before passing to the amendments, an omission of a violation of the original text is here supplied. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 2, and 5, to borrow money, coin money, violated by the legal tender treasury, notes, and by the national banking laws. So uh, the the Congress passed a National Banking Act, Acts, during the war, which established another central banking system for the United States, and they started printing greenbacks. And it's interesting that Keene brings this up, because if you want to trace central banking in the United States, the current central banking system, well then you have to go back to 1863 and 64, and um, there were a few opponents of this in the Congress, most notably, again, James A. Byard, who brought out that if you do this, if you, if you start printing money, it's illegal. You know, coin money means actual coin. That's how they read it. Because if you look back at the, at the ratification debates of the Constitution and in Philadelphia itself, one of the things people brought up is that this Constitution is going to destroy paper money in the United States, and that was desired People didn't want to have this paper money circulating around because it was, it was inflationary. They didn't want to have a currency that could be destroyed. And this was a hot issue. I mean, if you look at, and I've mentioned before, think locally, act locally. There are issues that are national issues that you could say, all right, well, they affect the entire union. Immigration is one of those. It affects the entire union, particularly when the US, when the executive branch, I should say, is continually flaunting the laws, the immigration and naturalization laws of the United States. So they're, they're violating the Constitution by doing that. But they're dumping people into the United States. Uh, and and the states have no idea who these people are or where they're going or where they're from. And we've seen the, the effect of that. But uh, that's a national issue. Monetary policy is a national issue. The destruction of the U.S. dollar is a national issue. Foreign policy is a national issue. If you want to say that there's an American nation, those are national issues. They affect all the people all the time. They're not exclusive to a state. Some issues are not national issues. In fact, most issues are not national issues. They're local issues. But there are some things that the, that the executive branch should be held accountable for. And foreign policy and monetary policy... And, of course, immigration fits in with foreign policy. Those are, those are the two things. I mean, look, commerce and defense. This is what Roger Sherman said the Constitution, that's what the general welfare meant. It meant commerce and defense. This is the general welfare of the Union. Uh, you ensure that there's a, f- a free economic zone in the United States, not overregulated like we have today, which, of course, is also illegal and constitutional, but uh, a free economic zone. And, of course, defense. you got to defend the states against invasion, which is exactly what's happening today. Uh, or, uh, you know, and and being the foreign policy arm of the states. The states have granted that power to the U.S. Congress. But, of course, by granting it, it means they had the authority to do so to begin with, and a granted power can always be rescinded. This is the important thing to note about a grant and a rescission of a power, and I've talked about, you know, what is originalism in another uh, podcast, so... But for many of you, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir on that. Then he starts bringing up the violations of the Bill of Rights. Article 1, Congress shall make no law, etc., abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, etc. And he says newspapers have been suppressed again and again by orders from Washington. New York World, New York News, Petersburg News, uh, Richmond Times in June of 1865 had warning. People have been thrown in jail for the suppression of free speech in the press. So this was violated over and over and over again by the U.S. government and the executive branch. Article 2. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The South are not only stripped of arms, but a gentleman going on a journey has to get a permit to, From a provost marshal to wear a pistol for his personal security against robbers, and a general order of Major General Edward O. C. Ord, commanding Virginia, has prohibited the state button being worn. So, this is interesting Uh, when you get into the whole Amendment Two issue, which of course is hotly debated right now. And I've actually had a a, a listener say, "Do an do a a, a podcast on the Second Amendment." Well, I could do that. I'll just say this. If you look at the Philadelphia Convention and you look at the ratification debates and then you look at the list of proposed amendments, what you find in those amendments, which became Amendment 2, what you find is that the founding generation were concerned that the power in Article 1, Section 8 to arm the militia could be construed as a, as a way to disarm the militia. So this is why you have Amendment 2. The Congress can arm the militia. They can say every American citizen of a certain age has to have a firearm. They can do that. What they cannot do is say you cannot have a firearm. Now, that's the general government. The states are different. And what you and now before incorporation, the states could regulate firearms. And the states still do regulate firearms, concealed carry permits, that type of thing. They still regulate that. The states can do that. The general government cannot. And, of course, the militia where every able-bodied, every able-bodied citizen, man, generally between 18 and 45, were considered to be the militia because we didn't have a regular army. We had a very small professional corps of officers we didn't have a regular army, so it was up to the people of the states to be the army. Should the state be invaded, and so uh, the general government has no authority, per article per or what he calls Article Two Amendment Two, to regulate any firearms whatsoever. Now I would argue that incorporation of the Second Amendment, just like incorporation of any amendment, is a bastardization of the Fourteenth Amendment and ill and. I mean, something that the Supreme Court created out of thin air. But the states are used to be able to do this, and of course they can't anymore. Um, you know, Pennsylvania had restrictions on firearms. But there was a time in the first Congress passed a Militia Act where it required citizens to have a firearm and uh, powder and ammunition. You had to have these things. It was required by the general government to do so. Uh, He says, Article 3 was, or Amendment 3 was violated. He says, of course, that is the amendment where you cannot quarter soldiers in anyone's house in peacetime, uh, nor in time of war, uh, without the consent of the owner. And he says, "In, in the absence of any law, a Yankee captain commissary has been in occupation of my house furniture and refusing me possession and his refusal confirmed by General Turner, commanding in Richmond, since April 11, 1865. And this is not uncommon. Virginia has no courts of law. They have been suppressed from the Supreme Court of Appeals to the Justice of the Peace. Amendment 4. The right of people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, etc., etc. It was no idle boast Secretary Seward made, To Dr. Russell, that he touched a little bell in his right hand and caused an arrest to be made in New York, another on his left and caused another arrest in St. Louis. In the Yankee state since May 1861, when the reckless triumph over liberty was uttered, no syllable of this article has been enforced to this hour, nor in the South since it fell under their power. The instances are thousands. And again, this is where you get to the arrest of people for opposition to the war. Uh, He brings up uh, Article 5, Amendment 5 was violated. Amendment 6 was violated. Amendment 7 was violated because people do not have trial by jury. Amendment 8 was violated, which, of course, is excessive. bail should not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. Bail constantly taken by military officers, exhausting fines by provost marshals for trivial offenses, generally against the usurped power and dignity of the petty tyrants who exact them. Hard labor for life, imprisonment in a sea, girt fortress, etc., and death are the cruel and hitherto unknown punishments inflicted on citizens of the United States by military commissions. Uh, Amendment 9. The enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. He says each of the preceding numbers furnishes a violation of this. And finally, Amendment 10. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution or prohibited to it by the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And he says, quote, The violations of this furnish instances of enormity which universal history cannot match. A, the overthrow and destruction of the social order and domestic institutions of private property. He's getting to slavery here and how he believes that was unconstitutional. Of course, we we can look back at that and say, okay, well, you're just whining over something that should have gone away anyways. Uh, But... He also brings up the state murder of the same 11 states by the overthrow of their political frame, the subversion of their governments and laws, and the imposition of arbitrary military governments. Thus, 10 out of the 11 additional articles inserted by the Patriots of 1789 and proposed chiefly by Virginia to protect the people in the states against federal usurpation have been since unnecessarily, many wantonly, violated in the war made by Yankee power upon the southern states. They claim that it was necessary, the plea of tyrants, true in some of these cases because their cause was itself tyranny. And then the whole of their action in the war against the southern Confederacy has been a denial of the right of self-government. So the case against Lincoln in the Constitution, the Republicans in the Constitution, essentially comes down to that. And this idea, were the states out of the Union or not? Essentially what many people were saying and what people say today, and so how you can detach the issues involved, You know how you can say, well, we, we support the idea of what the South was doing because it was the right of self-determination and self-government, even though we might, or we do, oppose the labor institutions of the South. But the right of self-government is the basis of the American system. And I think the two issues can be detached very easily. That right of self-government, as as Keene and many, many others have said, was essentially what the southern states were doing in 1861 and 1860. They were exercising the right of self-government and self-determination. Regardless of what we thought about their labor institutions or the basic structure of their social order. The fact is that these people, through popular conventions, in greater numbers of support than who supported the American War for Independence, decided to exert the right of self-determination. And this is what people like Lysander Spooner, an abolitionist, were saying. You, You cannot deny that and have constitutional government. And, of course, the Union government violated the Constitution, as Keen pointed out. I just used his diary as an example because I think he did a fairly thorough job in looking at all the areas where the Constitution was violated by the U.S. government over and over and over again. And so when I write nine presidents who screwed up America and four tried to savor that Lincoln screwed up America, this is how, because he's setting the blueprint for future presidents to go about, as we have today, violating the Constitution and no one will stop them. As Keene said, it was a petty tyranny, and there was no opposition, or at least not a sizable enough opposition to really stop it. There were people who were opposed to it in the North. They were just rounded up, booted out of the Congress, thrown in jail, discredited, ostracized. And there were some prominent people that opposed the Lincoln administration. Now, the common retort is, well, they were all Democrats. So what? They were pointing out the Constitution was being violated, and people should pay attention to that. Just as I I really, I mean, George Washington is one of my favorite characters in American history, but he's not infallible. He was violating the Constitution in his second term, and he should be called out for it. This is not politics. It's the president takes an oath to uphold, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And because of that, they had to be held accountable. And so I think that you know this is something that most Americans don't think about. They want the president to do x y or z and they don't care if it's constitutional or not. As long as their guy is doing x y and z if it's unconstitutional who cares but the great danger to that and this is why Lincoln is you know a watershed also in American history you go You know, you have Washington and Jackson, but there was still resistance to this. And and I point out over and over again, one of the greatest fears the founding generation had was a strong executive. They They didn't want the executive to have the kind of power that the current presidency has. And if they thought that would happen, they never would have ratified the Constitution. The proponents of the document said Obama and Bush and Clinton would never happen. But, of course, they were wrong. The problem is that when you when you have your guy, X, X, doing X, Y, and Z, then the guy that follows can do X, Y, and Z too, and he can use that power against you. And that is the great danger of executive government. This is why the founding generation feared executive government. And essentially, that's what we have in the United States today. We have executive government. So if we really want to talk about Restoring the Constitution, and I'm not certain it can ever happen. Uh, I'm, you know, I think that the executive branch needs to be reined in. The Congress could do some of it, but I think there should be some amendments discussed in Article Five Convention, and also this idea of think locally, act locally. Essentially, you have to start doing things in your own community and your own state, and you have people have to have a backbone, and they have to stand up to the executive branch, and they have to stand up to the unconstitutional usurpation of power. I hear all the time, well, the supremacy, Article 6, Article 6, supremacy. The, the war settled all this. Article 6. Article 6 says that the United States, that laws and treaties of the United States are supreme in pursuance of the Constitution. That means, if they aren't in pursuance of the Constitution, meaning that they don't follow the Constitution, they are no law. Now, of course, uh, people have to be willing to take a stand on that. But that's what I think about Lincoln and the Constitution. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'll see you next time on The Brian Planning Show.